0: In my previous podcast I told the story of the build-up to the Battle of Marathon. I described how the Persian Empire had steadily expanded under its kings Cyrus and Darius from its homeland in today's Iran to an area stretching from the Mediterranean to the Indus Valley and become the largest and most powerful state to have existed up to that time. This expansion had brought them into contact with the Greek city-states of the Mediterranean which though each fiercely independent had a strong sense of collective Greek identity. In the 490s BC when the Athenians aided their Greek neighbours on the west coast of Asia Minor in a failed rebellion, the Persians were furious. The depth of anger may be explained by an event back in 513 BC when an Athenian embassy, asking Persia for help against their rivals the Spartans, agreed, on their own initiative, to pledge Persians earth and water. The ambassadors perhaps didn't fully comprehend the meaning behind this act. For the Persians this was no empty gesture, it was the act that symbolised recognition of their supremacy. As a result, Athens was seen as nominally friendly to the Persians, and so when they supported the rebellion it was seen as betrayal, that could not go unpunished. Not doing so might give others the idea that a Persian alliance is something they could opt in or out of as they liked. So Darius, the Persian king, organised a full-scale invasion of the Greek mainland in 490 BC, with special attention paid to punishing Athens and other city-states that had dared to challenge Persian authority. Before the campaign started, Darius sent envoys throughout Greece to demand earth and water. One aim was to assess the likely strength of opposition, and tailor the strategy for conquest accordingly. Fearful of the repercussions of resistance, all of the Greeks of the Aegean Islands sent the tokens of submission, as did many on the mainland in central and northern Greece. The Spartans and Athenians, however, refused. Herodotus wrote that Athens responded by killing their Persian envoy and the Spartans threw theirs down a well, saying they would find plenty of earth and water down there. Though this was a violation of international norms that gave some protection to envoys even during times of war, it showed the strong feeling on the matter. Darius' plan was likely to destroy the Greek states that resisted and at the same time cement authority over those in central and northern Greece that submitted. From an occupied Athens, the conquest of the rest of Greece could be organised. He decided on an amphibious expedition and concentrate attacks on three city-states that had defied him, the island of Naxos, Athens and Eritrea, which lay on the island of Euboea, just east of Athens. The force landed first on Naxos, where the locals fled to the hills. The Persians made an example of the place by burning down the town before moving on. The rest of the Cyclades Islands quickly surrendered and were left alone, so the fleet continued to its next main target, Eritrea. The Eritreans were divided as to what to do, to take to the hills, surrender or defend the city. They opted for the latter, and withdrew behind their fortified walls. The Persians set up siege, and for six days there was fierce fighting and losses on both sides. On the sixth night though, two prominent Eritreans put their own and family's safety before their community, and opened the city gate to the Persians. Once inside, the Persians burnt down the city, and forced the entire surviving population into ships to be carried back to Asia, and ultimately resettled in Mesopotamia, and so lost to history. From there, it was just a short trip to the Greek mainland, where the Persians landed on the plain of Marathon, just to the north of Athens. Athens saw the invading fleet, and sent a messenger, Philippides, to Sparta, requesting help. According to Herodotus, he ran the 140-mile journey in less than two days. When he arrived... The Spartans agreed to help and send 2,000 troops, but at the time were in the middle of an important religious festival, and could only do so once that was over in a few days. This was no empty excuse, the last thing they wanted to do was anger the gods by not carrying out the necessary rituals to appease them. The Athenians, meanwhile, debated the best course of action, whether to defend the city or meet the Persians in the field. The decision was taken by a board of ten generals called the strategoi, and it was the most influential of these, Mintiades, who convinced them to meet the Persians head-on. So a force of Athenians were sent to some hills overlooking the plain of Marathon, where they were joined by reinforcements from Plataea, an ally of Athens. The combined forces numbered about ten or eleven thousand. The Greek infantry were called hoplites, a force of citizen militiamen clad in metal body armour and helmets. They marched into combat, shoulder to shoulder, in a rectangular formation called a phalanx, which bristled with the spears of its soldiers positioned in ranks and files. Staying in line and working as part of a group was required for successful phalanx tactics. A good hoplite, in the words of the 7th century BC poet Archilochus, was, in quote, a short man firmly placed upon his legs, with a courageous heart not to be uprooted from the spot where he plants his feet. Greek cavalry were limited to those few citizens who could afford expensive war horses, and so were secondary in importance to the hoplites. The Persian infantry, meanwhile, were light, armoured with a wicker shield, composite bow, spear, and short sword, and organised into units of 10,000. Their cavalry was, like the Greeks, derived from the richer classes. They used bows, javelins and spears, and wore ornate clothing. Their elite troops, seated on the king, were called the Immortals, who were always maintained at a strength of 10,000 individuals. Another difference to the Greeks was that the Persian armies were often ethnically diverse, each peoples dressed in their own local fashion, A particularly formidable group of fighters were the Sakai, who came from the plains of Central Asia. The traditional Persian method of attack was to, as the enemy advanced, to shower them with arrows. Then, while the infantry moved to attack enemy lines, the cavalry attacked the enemy flanks, trying to encircle them, and then chase down any breaking or fleeing foes. Unfortunately, very few details of the actual Battle of Marathon are known. Herodotus relates how the Greeks were outnumbered, as a result of which their lines, especially the centre, were thinned to only a few ranks deep. He says that they ran a mile towards the Persians before engaging with them. This sounds highly unlikely in heavy armour and would have worn them out. They would in fact only have had to run the last 150 metres, that is the range of the Persian arrows. The actual fighting is summed up by Herodotus in just one short passage. In quote, the fight at Marathon went on for a long time, and in the centre the barbarians won, where the Persians themselves and the Sakai were stationed. At this point they won and broke the Greeks and pursued them inland, but on each wing the Athenians and the Plataeans were victorious, and as they conquered They let flee the part of the barbarian army they had routed, and joining their two wings together, they fought the Persians, who had broken their centre, and then the Athenians won the day. As the Athenians fled, the Greeks followed them, hacking at them until they came to the sea. So, whether or not the plan of Miltiades all along was to encircle the Persians, that was what happened. According to Herodotus, the Persians lost about 60,490 men, and the Athenians only 192. Perhaps Herodotus was biased, but alternative sources do not reveal much more detail. The historian Diodorus of Sicily is fairly consistent with Herodotus' account, while later authors describe the Persian wars, but in less detail. As far as we can tell, There were a couple of reasons why Athenians won this expected victory over a much more numerous foe, and one which had previously been highly successful. Firstly, the Greeks were highly motivated, determined to defend their home and too proud to submit to a foreign enemy. Secondly, the heavier armour of the infantry must have been an advantage over lighter-armed Persians. Thirdly, they had reached a high level of organisation and discipline in battle, in the form of previously described phalanx. They were prepared to stand ground in the face of a deadly threat, fighting hard for each other. The surviving Persians sailed round Attica with the aim of directly attacking Athens, so the Athenian army hurried on foot the approximately 26 miles from the battlefield of Marathon to their capital to help the defence. This event was later confused with the earlier described run of Philippides to Sparta, leading to a legendary but inaccurate version of events. This myth has Philippides running from Marathon to Athens after the battle to announce the Greek victory, so today's marathon races commemorate this confused amalgam of two different events. The battered Persian fleet, on seeing Athens well defended, thought better than to risk attack and returned home. The Spartan contingent, incidentally, arrived later and were impressed by the Athenian success. Marathon had taught not only Athens, but the whole of Greece, that humiliation at the hands of the superpower were not inevitable. The hordes of the great king could be beaten. For sure, Darius would have been itching to organise another attack to exact revenge, but here the Athenians got a stroke of luck. Just after Marathon, by chance, the Egyptians rose in revolt, oppressed by their Persian rulers' ceaseless demand for grain and levies. It took the Persians a few years to put down this rebellion, by which time Darius had passed away, leaving the throne to his son Xerxes. Though not the oldest of royal princes, Xerxes had long been the heir apparent. Unlike many of his half-brothers, he had the right mix of blood flowing in his veins, for his mother, Atossa, the daughter of Cyrus the Great, in Herodotus' account, the new king came across as arrogant and decadent. For example, when a Lydian subject pleaded with him to allow his eldest of five sons to stay at home while the other four go to war, Xerxes flew into a rage and ordered the murder of the eldest son. Also, Xerxes' heavy-handed and insensitive treatment of his Babylonian subjects provoked them into rebellion which was fiercely put down. So it was only in 480 BC, ten years after Marathon, when Xerxes was able to make his move against the Greeks, and this time it was a full-scale invasion force, instead of just a punitive mission. Herodotus claims the Persian forces were the largest the empire had ever assembled. This time, almost all Greek city-states surrendered. A sense of self-preservation, and probably also like local rivalries, trumped any sense of pan Hellenic camaraderie. However, 31 Greek states, most notably Sparta and Athens, did decide to resist and formed a military coalition to fight the invasion. So a land army was sent to hold up the Persians while reinforcements arrived. This force, consisting of 300 Spartans plus a number of other Greeks, fought the famous Battle of Thermopylae in a narrow mountain pass on the eastern coast of central Greece. The narrowness of the pass meant that the Persians could not take advantage of their superior numbers to overwhelm the Greeks, who were more skilled at close-in fighting. The Persians were only able to make headway when a local Greek revealed a secret route to get behind the Greek line, but even then the Greeks stood firm until they were finally all killed, taking heavy Persian casualties down with them. The Persians must have realised this wasn't going to be as easy as they first thought. By the time the Persians reached Athens it had been evacuated. The non-combatants had been moved to the northeast coast of the Peloponnese, so Xerxes sacked the city as punishment for their defiance and then turned to dealing with the enemy navy. The Persians hoped to fight on the open seas, but the Greeks instead waited in a narrow channel of water between the mainland and the island of Salamis. After three weeks of stalemate the king lost patience and sent in his ships, which turned out to be a very rash decision. The Athenian commander, Themistocles, realised that the narrow channel of water would, as in Thermopylae, cancel out the numeric advantage that the vastly larger Persian navy possessed. Not only this, but it minimised the advantage of the Persian ships' greater manoeuvrability. The heavier Greek ships, meanwhile, could employ their underwater rams to sink the less sturdy Persian craft, With this advantage, the Greeks were victorious and destroyed much of the Persian navy. Xerxes was forced to change his plans. This invasion would clearly take its time and was not wise for the great king to spend too much time from his court. So he returned to his capital and left his brother-in-law, Mardonius, in charge of the land army. At this point the Persians changed tactic. Impressed by the resistance they had met, they offered the Athenians an alliance. In exchange for helping subjugate their fellow Greeks to Persian rule, Athens would be given a pardon, a guarantee of self-government and the rebuilding of their city at royal expense. The Athenians must have been tempted to accept, and to avoid the inevitable Persian attack if they refused. Perhaps they were wary of it being a trap. Also they must have been emboldened by their recent successes, but above all, they did not want to make any compromises on their independence, and they turned the offer down. And so the allied Greek army and the Persians met on the plains of Boeotia, north of Athens, and near the ancient city of Plataea. At first, there was a standoff for eleven days, as each side declined to be drawn into battle. Then the Greek supply lines became disrupted, and they attempted to retreat, during which their battle line fragmented. Thinking the Greeks in full retreat, Mardonius ordered his force to pursue them, but his foe halted and gave battle, routing the lightly-armed Persian infantry and killing Mardonius. Large numbers of the Persian army were trapped in their own camp and slaughtered. On top of this, on the same day as the Battle of Plataea, the remaining Persian fleet was ambushed and burned near Mount Mycale on the Ionian coast, these two events effectively ended the invasion. The Persians had been beaten and would not return this time. Some of the battles selected for this podcast series are isolated events, while others, such as the Battle of Marathon, are one battle in a protracted war. The victories at Salamis and Plataea here were also important, indeed involved far more troops than at Marathon. But the significance of the Battle of Marathon is that it gave the Greeks the belief that the mighty Persian forces really could be beaten. Without the hope that that victory gave, it would have been much more difficult to unite enough Greek city-states to resist the Persians later on, and it may otherwise have been judged too risky to defy the empire, and safer to opt for the kind of arrangement made in Ionia, that is, some level of autonomy, but under Persian sovereignty. But why is this battle on the edge of Europe from long ago relevant to the history of Europe? Well, John Stuart Mill once famously suggested that, quote, the Battle of Marathon, even as of in, in British history, is more important than the Battle of Hastings, end quote. The reason for this thinking is that the cultural achievements of ancient Greece, and especially Athens during the 5th century BC, that is the period just after the Persian Wars, laid the foundations of Western civilization. If, under Persian control, the Greeks had made compromises on their system of beliefs, this unprecedented flourishing of art, political theory, philosophy and science may have been snuffed out before it got going, and the history of Europe and the world would have been very different. And what would have happened if the Athenians had, like the Eritreans, been defeated and the survivors transported to Persia? the democratic system they created and decided to risk their lives for would have died in its infancy, a failed experiment and a mere footnote in history, if remembered at all. Instead, full of confidence after the military success, the people of Athens went on to build a prosperous, powerful and democratic state that achieved great things during the next half century. I will try to sum up the golden age of Athens in a few words. The political leader of the time, especially from 461 BC until his death in 429, was Pericles, who oversaw the restoration of temples destroyed by the Persians and the construction of new ones, particularly on the Acropolis, including the Parthenon. In the field of literature, it was also a remarkable time. The first great name was that of Aeschylus. He was born in 525 BC and over a long life wrote over 80 plays. Of which seven have survived. Despite his literary achievements though, so important was the war to Aeschylus and the Greeks that upon his death, around 456 BC, his epitaph commemorated his participation in the Greek victory at Marathon rather than his success as a playwright. As well as Marathon he probably also fought at Salamis and Plataea. The second great tragedian Sophocles, some 30 years younger than Aeschylus, is reported to have written a total of 123 plays, of which again only seven survive, including Antigone, Oedipus the King and Electra. Thirdly was Euripides, from whom 19 plays survive. He is identified with theatrical innovations that have profoundly influenced drama down to modern times, especially in the representation of traditional, mythical heroes as ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And the other great dramatist of the age was Aristophanes, who was a writer not of tra- tragedies but of comedies, in which he mercilessly caricatured the leading figures of Athens. One such work was The Clouds, the subject for which was another great thinker of the day, the philosopher Socrates. The influence Of Socrates' ideas and approach, and that of his pupil Plato became the foundation stone of Western philosophy. Not only that, the man we owe for telling us the story of Marathon, Herodotus, lived in Athens, where he invented historical writing. It would be a very tempting conclusion that the Greeks were victorious because democratic principles won out over tyranny and aggression. That would be an oversimplification and doesn't take account of the contributions of city-states led by oligarchs or tyrants, nor the Persian policy of respect for local customs. Also, it should be taken into account that the Persians also had to deal with other distractions within the empire, such as the rebellion in Egypt, whereas the Greeks were more focused on this war. It seems to me that the Persians were suffering from imperial overreach. At least this is the impression that Herodotus gives. But I do think that the Greek spirit of entrepreneurship plus the innovations born of a freedom of thought did help to improve Greek military capabilities and organisation. The idea that political decision-making is formed by persuasion rather than force or status fits well with the spirit of the intellectual changes of ancient Greece. The Persian dictatorship... However benign, did not share that same spirit and did not inspire its people to the same degree to fight and be willing to die for the ideals of the state. Herodotus describes in some detail the discussions by Athenians and Persian leaders about whether and how to engage in battle. While the Persian king expected his every word to be obeyed, the Greeks made decisions on the basis of a shared consensus. Ultimately, This approach proved more successful. We must bear in mind always though that almost our entire knowledge of events is from the Greek side, and this must be borne in mind before reaching any conclusions. In itself, the Battle of Marathon was just an unsuccessful landing of Persian punitive forces, but like the Battle of Thermopylae where 300 Spartans became immortalised by their bravery, The idea that was born from the events was bigger than the immediate strategic impact. It had an enormous effect on the Greeks on the sense of their identity and how they were distinct from the peoples of Asia. And this effect was amplified by the fact that it was written down and so remembered through the ages and to this day. I believe, considering the borders of Asia and Europe are more cultural than geographical, our concept of where Europe ends and Asia begins could be different today if the Persians had been victorious. In the next podcast I will continue this history of Europe by fast-forwarding to the 300 BC. Two and a half centuries after the Battle of Marathon, the offensive would come from the opposite direction, from Europe into Asia. The story of Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia is as compelling as it is remarkable. The most mighty empire was not only defended against, but now it was conquered, and Alexander became perhaps the most celebrated military leader of all time. I have started putting more information, such as maps, on the website www.historyeurope.net, so feel free to take a look. So in two weeks' time, I will tell the story of Alexander the Great. Please join me then for the Battle of Gaugamala.